0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton.
1: Our guest today is Dan Taylor, who is a professor of accounting at Wharton, and we're going to talk to him about a new proposal from the Securities and Exchange Commission about audits for company for relatively small companies. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. Uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission voted in May to advance a proposal that, uh, according to media reports, would exempt public companies with less than hundred million dollars in annual revenues from a component of outside audits. This is supposed to uh, encourage more companies to go public. So, Dan, do you agree with the SEC's reasoning?
0: Uh, so, so thanks for having me here. I'm happy to. Um... Happy to discuss uh, these issues. Uh, I do think it's a it's a good question. We see a lot in the news about uh, the SEC trying to uh, reduce the compliance burden and deburden companies so that they don't have to pay large costs uh, to to be publicly traded. And um, you know, proponents of this particular proposal, uh, the notion that we should exempt companies with less than 100 million in annual revenues from internal control audits. They argue that it will in fact encourage more companies to go public. And I think there are really two things here that we need to think about. Uh, the first is that there's this trade-off between the number of companies seeking to go public and the quality of companies seeking to go public. So this trade-off, you know, really doesn't seem to be part of the part of the discussion. Rather, sort of the proponents of of deburdening or reducing compliance costs tend to sort of fixate on just the number of pu- public companies as if the objective is just let's get more public companies out there traded in the market. And that, that's – I can understand that. That's somewhat admirable. There's a lot of action now in private equity, and uh, their objective is to bring in some of those private equity companies into the public market and democratize – sort of uh, investing, give in- investors access to these companies that would otherwise be exclusive to private equity holders. So that's that's admirable, but let's go back to the trade-off. There is a trade-off between the number of public companies and the quality of public companies, and that's especially important for this proposal. So just a short, a short digression to get you to, to see what the trade-off is and how it relates. Suppose you're in the market for a used car, and the regulator says, All cars have to be inspected by a mechanic, and that report has to be provided to prospective buyers. What types of cars are going to be sold in such a market? Well, the cars that get the bad reports that are the lemons or the junkers probably aren't going to be sold because the mechanics report will uncover them. So now suppose we move from that world where everybody has to provide an inspection report to a world when the regulator does not require the inspection report to be provided. Would that encourage more cars on the market? Would there be more people selling their used cars? Certainly, right? There's going to be two types of new sellers that come into the market. The first type of seller is going to be that person that couldn't afford the, the mechanics inspection port. You had a good quality car, but just for whatever reason, couldn't afford to get the mechanic to inspect it. That's the first type. And those are the ones that, you know, we want to, that, that's good. We like uh, high quality cars. But there is a second type, a type B. First type A, second is type B. Type B is the person who wouldn't have tried to sell the car in the earlier market because they would have failed the mechanics report. There are some systematic issues, some deficiencies under the hood of the car that would have been uncovered by the report, and they wouldn't have been able to sell their car. But now maybe they can sell their car to somebody because there's not this – requirement uh, requirement of a report but are there more cars public yes so now the question is what's the balance between type a and type b are there more cars coming onto the market that are these good types by people that couldn't afford or are there more types of cars by you know some sleazy people who were trying to avoid the uh avoid the inspector's report so this kind of you could Think of that as a, an analogy for what's going on here where the inspection report is the internal control audit and the selling of the cars is uh, the company selling its shares to, to investors. Now, we can provide some insight on that because we can go all the way back to uh, the JOBS Act in 2012, and that's related to the current proposal. The JOBS Act exempted IPOs with less than a billion in revenue, less than a billion in revenue. So it's a surprise, that's most IPOs. Exempted them from internal control audits. So what's interesting about this is now the SEC is saying, well, if if you're not an IPO firm, if you're a regular firm, we want to exempt you from internal control audits if you're less than 100 million in in annual revenue. So we can figure out what's going to happen for this proposal. Based on what happened in the old proposal in the uh, or the actual law in the in the Jobs Act. So what do we see? Well, we see more Type Bs. Uh, going public, and so the SEC's own analysis and, and its proposal, it, it did its due diligence and, and uh, did some analysis. Uh, the firms that went public after the Jobs Act and were able to take advantage of the no internal control audit requirement were 1 point five times more likely to restate their financial statements than their peers. So they had a thirteen point five percent restatement rate relative to eight point five percent peer group. Now, the restatement rates are important. What that tells us is that more type B firms went public. Uh, You know, if the restatement rate, if there was type A firms going public, we would have expected the restatement rate to either be the same uh, or to drop. So why, how is this, how can we wrap the JOBS Act in this CAR example back to the current proposal? Well, when we relax auditing requirements for public companies, we see higher restatement rates. That's an empirical fact, and the SEC admitted as such in their, own, in their own proposal. So now think about it. Think about it. Does this make sense? Well, suppose there's a marginal company that wouldn't have gone public when the audit is required. Right? They were on the fence. But now that the audit isn't required, they're willing to go public. Is that really the type of company that you want to be investing in? All right? So there is this trade-off between number of companies and quality of companies. We can certainly increase the number of companies by sacrificing compliance and oversight, but is that something that we should be, you know, we should desire? What I'm concerned about is not the informed investors, right? Informed investors, institutional investors, they can sift through this, they know what they're doing, they're professionals. I'm concerned more about the retail investors who hold index funds. They hold the S and P, they hold the Nasdaq, they hold ETFs. And so, if we reduce the amount of compliance and oversight necessary to be a publicly traded company in the United States, what that's going to do is it's going to increase volatility, right? Because it's the Type B firms that are coming public now. It's going to increase the number of accounting scandals. And it's not clear. Sure, the number of companies will be greater in the public markets but there's this undesirable side effect. And I'm not really sure that it's a good thing to increase the number of companies and as a side effect have greater volatility and more uh, accounting accounting uh, scandals. So I think we need to strike a balance. So I'm not saying don't don't increase the number of publicly traded companies, but there's this this cost-benefit trade-off that needs to be taken into account. And we shouldn't just fixate myopically on increasing the number of, of publicly traded companies. Now, with respect to this particular proposal, what sort of struck me about this is the SEC's estimated annual cost savings. So what is the cost savings to foregoing an an internal control audit? The SEC, in its own proposal, so I'm just going to take what they've done as given. I'm not questioning their their analysis. Uh, They estimate that the average annual cost savings from foregoing an internal control audit, average, is 210,000. 100,000 savings in uh, audit fees that you pay, you know, your your big four auditor or your non-big four auditor, and 110,000 savings uh, in uh, internal costs. So you no longer have to dedicate staff to working with the working with the auditor. So no, I don't think it's actually going to encourage companies to go public.
1: So Dan, thank you. That was a really good analogy for you to use and as we talk about the proposal, uh, could you help our audience understand some of its key features? Uh, you refer to inter- internal control audits. Could you explain a little bit what they are, and how will things change from the system that exists today if the proposal is implemented?
0: Okay, so let's let's think it's a good idea to scroll back and and understand the existing institutional features uh, or regulatory environment around internal control audits, and then talk about you know what. How it will change uh, if the proposal gets gets implemented and and for that matter, what an internal control audit actually is, so uh, let's talk about what an internal control audit actually is before we get into what the regulatory environment is. so uh, the way to think about it is is that an internal control audit is designed to sort of uh, audit the process that managers go through to get at the financial statements and the economic transactions. So a a good example is, you know, uh, when I'm uh, grading student exams, I can either grade them on the answer that they give or, or in addition, I can also grade them on the work that they show. So I'm grading them twofold. Did you get the right answer? And did you show the right work? So if they get the right answer but they didn't show their work or they showed their work and it was wrong, maybe I should dock them for points because that means they got the right answer perhaps by chance. And so that's a that's – a, you know, it's a rough analogy for what an, an internal control audit is doing. Uh, uh, another example would be, you know, what does an internal control audit prevent? Well, suppose, you know, you have a manager. The manager can set up payroll. We want to make sure that the manager can't invent four fictitious employees – and then pay those four fictitious employees and and pocket the money. That would be so- something of an internal control that would prevent the manager from actually, you know, from actually doing that or from uh, paying a uh, additional money to a uh, a supplier and shortchanging another supplier. Some sort of internal control on uh, on the money flow. So that's what an internal control is. You could think about it as the processes that the company the company use. So right now, in the regulatory structure uh, after Sarbanes-Oxley or SOX, there's uh, two types of things related to internal controls. There's SOX 404A, and SOX 404A internal control uh, requirement is that all companies, all publicly traded companies, or effectively all publicly traded companies, have to have their managers – provide a disclosure to investors that report their opinion of their own internal controls. So 404A would be managers say, we think our internal controls are great, or we've identified some deficiencies in our internal controls, and we're working to fix them. So all companies have to sort of, uh, effectively all companies have to provide that. Uh, Then there's a SOX 404B. The SOX 404B is the internal control audit so the audit is having the auditor, the external party, come in and actually verify the quality of the internal controls and that the firm is following best practices. So a good way to think about this is that 404A is the trust. We trust that managers disclose truthfully in 404A that they have a weakness in their internal controls or that, or that they are you know, well-designed. 404B is the verify have the auditor actually come in, look under the hood, and see if the internal controls are according to best practices. So we have trust. We also have verify, verification. And that verification is very, very important. What the SEC's proposal is saying is is that, well, if you have less than $100 in annual revenue, you are now going to be exempt from 404B. So you do not need to get verification on your uh, on your 404A opinions, on your own opinion of, of internal controls. So what's going to happen? Well, that means that after the pro- if the proposal gets gets put into place, fewer companies will get the internal control audits and then investors and, and market participants will have to rely solely on what managers say is the quality of their uh, of their internal controls. Now that's going to do two things, right? So the audit, that verification, Uh, it has, think about what it's designed to do. It's designed to verify and to detect, uh, any issues relating to the internal controls. So detection, that's what we call the detection effect or the detection role. Second, the disclosure, the auditor discloses. So there's a, a detection role and a disclosure role. Those two things combined give rise to incentives to make managers actually improve their internal controls. So this can't be overstated. I think it's something that's been overlooked. Once you have an audit of internal controls, it actually incentivizes managers to take real actions to improve the quality of their internal controls. And this is also borne out in the SEC's own analysis and their proposal, is that they show that after you have an audit, the quality of your internal controls increases materially, uh, and 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 so the concern for us is is that if you're going to roll back that verification component, then there's going to be less incentive for managers to increase the quality of their of their internal controls, and there'll potentially be greater greater accounting restatements and potentially open the door for uh, for greater accounting fraud.
1: Jay Clayton, the SEC chairman, has said that many smaller companies, including biotech and healthcare companies, will be able to redirect their savings into growing their companies by investing in research and human capital. Uh, Do you think he's right?
0: So I I think it's certainly true that if you're saving some money from reduced oversight and reduced compliance, you know, managers can, you know, redirect the funds to you know, wherever they would like it to. They can redirect it towards investment, towards research and development. They could redirect it towards salaries, bonuses, share buybacks. They could, you know, put the money that they saved into into any project. I I take the point that, you know, some – we want to encourage investment and research and development. But the question is, is should we be doing that by sacrificing oversight and sacrificing compliance, there are other ways to encourage research and development and investment through tax credits, right? Let's go back to the SEC's mission statement. The SEC's mission statement was not to encourage investment and R&D in the number of publicly traded companies. It was to protect investors. So, sure, we can encourage investment and R&D by reducing compliance and, and oversight, but it's not. But that will be sacrificing in, investor protections. The other thing I want to touch on with, with respect to this is that you know some proponents that have been in the popular press have suggested that this will save, you know, millions of dollars, not the two hundred eleven thousand that the SEC is saying it'll save, but millions of dollars. So let's talk about that uh, for a little bit. So maybe for some companies, this doesn't save two hundred eleven thousand or two hundred ten thousand, excuse me. It saves millions—one million, two million. Well, what's going on with the company that would save one million or two million? The company still has to provide its own assessment of its internal controls. So now that they don't have to uh, pay for the 404B audit, we know that they're going to save audit fees of 100000 I should mention the average audit fees of these firms is only 400000 So they're not saving millions in audit fees. They're only paying 400000 in audit fees. All right. So where are they getting the rest of the millions in savings from? Well, the argument is, is that now they can cut their internal staff in the internal control department. But wait a minute, if you cut your staff in the internal control department, does that mean you're going to have weaker internal controls? Well, that goes back to what I was saying last time. It just shows that, yes, you are going to have weaker internal controls because it was the verification, it was the audit that was forcing these companies to have best practices. And by cutting internal control staff by one or two million... Uh, two, one or two million dollars. You're basically saying that the you know that the quality of the internal controls will 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 decline. So that's you know that's something to think about. That the the cost savings here that the SEC estimates is two hundred and ten thousand. That's you know sure it's twenty five percent of the average audit fee for these firms, which is four hundred thousand. Again, small mainly biotech firms. So if you're listening to this and and you're thinking of Microsoft and And uh, or Amazon or these large cap companies not going on here. We're talking about companies with less than 100 million in revenue, very small. So on average, they pay 400 thousand in audit fees. They'll save 100 thousand in audit fees on the proposal. These companies also have uh, market cap. The average company that's being affected by this proposal has 231 million average market capitalization and 43 million average in revenue. So let, let's think about encouraging investment and, 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 and R&D and human capital. They're saving 210000 210000 is, you know, rounding error in terms of the firm's revenue and certainly rounding error, less than 0.1% of the average firm's market cap. So th- the savings here is not particularly, like 211000 is not particularly, is not particularly substantial And in the case where the savings is substantial or when proponents are saying, oh, we're saving one to two million dollars, you know, I really worry about what they're actually doing to their internal control departments if they're saving that much money simply from the absence of this, you know, having a third party come in and verify their, uh, their internal controls.
1: So you collaborated with faculty members at Stanford, the University of North Carolina and Indiana University to analyze this proposal. Could you give us a broad overview of your main findings?
0: Sure. Um just to uh to take a step back for those of you that might not be familiar with the SEC's um rulemaking process, the way this typically works is the SEC puts forward a proposal, you know, it tells the public what it's thinking about doing. Uh it then opens up what's known as the comment letter period and solicits uh opinions and from the public, uh from anybody who's interested. And so you can go online and submit comments, analyses to to the, SC, to the SEC. They then review the comment the comment letters and what they've heard back from various constituencies uh, before making their final before making their final decision. That's what's known as evidence based policymaking. So it espouses a preference for making policies policy decisions based on empirical data and empirical evidence, and that's that's sort of commendable. That's sort of like the, the best thing that we can hope for that, that our regulatory bodies would do is make evidence-based policymaking. So as part of that process, uh, we reviewed the proposal and submitted a comment letter. And I would uh, encourage all of the listeners um, who are interested in looking at the comment letter and, and the analysis and our summary of it to go online to Knowledge at Wharton and uh, and you can find our, our comment, letter, comment letter there. So to, just to briefly... Summarize and to sort of recap um, what we did. There's really uh, two main parts of uh, of our of our analysis or of our comment letter. Uh, The first one is talking about the costs of these internal control audits. Uh, As 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 we mentioned previously, in two hundred ten thousand, the SEC again estimates two hundred ten thousand in cost savings from foregoing internal control audits. And you know we basically did some analysis there and showed that that's a, a very tiny fraction, less than one percent, of the average affected company's uh, market value. So we sort of really questioned the economic significance uh, of the proposed savings on average. Again, there are going to be firms that will realize larger savings, some that realize smaller savings, but in evidence-based policymaking, you really want to be considered, considering the average effect, not just the effect on 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 a few select few select firms. And so what we discuss is that we need to weigh the $210,000 in cost savings against the benefit of the audits. So we're going to do away with the internal control audits. We're going to save $210,000. But what was the value of the audit in the first place? So that's, that's sort of part one is we basically, you know, talk about the cost and then say they need to be weighed against, against the benefits of the audits. Um, and then... Part two starts to actually get into, uh, part two of our comment letter actually starts to get into the benefits of the audits and talks about some, uh, some empirical analysis. Uh, and we raise a couple of issues. So when the SEC puts forward a proposal, it must also submit an empirical analysis of the, the data that support the proposal. And so in part two of our letter, we somewhat critique the the SEC's, uh, the SEC's analysis. Um, they did not attempt to quantify the benefit of the audits they just talk about the cost of the audits uh, no quantification of the benefits they focused on the restatement rates so earlier we you know discussed the restatement rates of emerging growth companies or companies under the jobs act and and that's 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 a good first step but you know if you're thinking about what you want to avoid what we're trying to avoid is you know large restatements and and, and accounting accounting fraud and you really don't want to be treating restatements as equal. So if I, if I say, for example, that, oh, the restatement rate in the economy is 1% of firms restated, someone might say, oh, that's very low. But now what if I told you that that one restatement was $2 billion? Well, now all of a sudden that one, you know, 1% one percent restatement was pretty big. And so uh, their proposal didn't consider the magnitude of the restatements. And that's really important because we're trying to weigh the cost with the benefits. Uh, so what we did is we did a, a little preliminary analysis. Okay, we weren't as uh, we didn't run the the data for every year. Uh, we just picked the most recent year that we have full financial statement data from, which is 2018, because 2019 is still underway. And we looked at all of the companies for which the proposal would exempt from internal control audits going forward, and then we looked at which of those companies issued restatements in 2018? Okay, so of all the companies that are going to be affected, how many restated in 2018? So we found there were 11 companies, focused on 11 companies that the commission, uh, that the SEC proposes to exempt from internal control audits, restated uh, financial statements last year alone. Okay, so 11 companies doesn't sound, you know, it doesn't sound very much. Keep in mind, there's only you know, between 350, 380 companies companies affected. So 11 is a pretty low restatement rate. But those 11 companies combined restated 65 million in net income. Now, net income is only, you know, one thing that you can restate, right? So you can restate your income. You can restate your assets. You can restate your liabilities. There's many different um, items on your financial statements that you can restate. But practitioners and Wall Street tends to focus on net income, so we just did that calculation. They restated $65 million in net income cumulatively, so 11 firms. Then the next thing is, is well, what's the, what is the effect on share price or on shareholder value? So when a company restates, if it restates due to fraud or if it restates due to internal control weakness, it's typically a harbinger of something very bad. Because what it in, indicates is it's the tip of the iceberg for worse things to come. And when companies issue restatements due to fraud, they typically don't recover from that. It's not like share price, share price goes down. It, it normally either stays down, and the company is on a fast track towards bankruptcy and, and shareholder lawsuits. So again, we have these 11 companies that, that restated, and we look to see what happened to stock price when they actually restated. And so what we found is is that those eleven companies that restated, when they restated, cumulatively, they destroyed two hundred and ninety-four million in shareholder wealth. Mm. So that calculation is take the stock price before the restatement, take the stock price after the restatement. So that's a change in stock price multiplied by the number of shares outstanding, mm. and that's the amount of shareholder value that was destroyed. So we have eleven companies. Destroying 294 million in value, in one year, right? One year. We didn't go back to 2014 or 15 or 16 or 17. We just did sort of the very, you know, pick the most recent, pick the most recent year. Now, 294 million. Let's scroll back. What was our cost savings? Our cost savings was 210 thousand per year per company. There's 300, uh, 300 and so companies affected. 358. So multiply 358 times the 210 estimated cost savings, and you get around 75 million. So that means that, on aggregate, the SEC, and this is in their proposal, is expecting to save companies or or the stock market 75 million per year. But there were restatements for you know 290 plus million. So in one year alone, the restatements wiped out more value then would have been saved by foregoing internal control audits. Now, I'll I be the first to admit, you know, we we, you know, we don't know whether uh, those, uh, those restatements would have occurred in the presence or absence of an audit, of an internal control audit. You know, we don't know if the, the restatements were uncovered through doing an internal control audit. We just know that those companies that the commission proposes to exempt from internal control audits— issued restatements that destroyed 294 million in in market value. That's that's sort of way there. And then so then we we basically say, okay, so now we, we think maybe the commission should pause, take stock of that, maybe do a deeper dive and look at the magnitude of what's being restated in their analysis rather than percentages. So that's the second part of the comment letter. Um, the other thing that we touch on is, you know, it, it's useful to look at fraud rates. So one thing the SEC, uh, the SEC didn't put together in their proposals, they didn't look at the rate of fraud and how um, uh, internal control weaknesses uh, relate to fraud. Several of the companies that are targeted by the proposal are biotech, as sort of you know, the, the, previous, uh, the previous question alluded to. So think about what's, what's happening here. You have companies that have less than $100 million in revenue but can be quite large, $500 million. Well, what type of company is that? that that's a high-growth company. You know, It could be a company, say, a hypothetical company working on a cure for cancer. Right? They don't have any sales right now, but maybe they've got some patents or they're working on some patents. That company would be very, very highly valued. And so when you have a fraud in a company like that, there's lots of shareholder wealth that could be destroyed right so you're not destroying in addition to destroying revenue you're destroying shareholder wealth okay so this is this is important you know if there's one more fraud in a comp we, well if there's one more fraud in the economy than what we have now and it applies to a 500 million dollar firm that could be a really big that could be a really big deal um, and what we know from academic research is that fraud is most likely to occur in high-growth firms. High-growth firms have the pressures to meet or beat analyst estimates. They have the pressures to uh, to perform. They get lots of stock options. And so both the SEC, sort of if you look at who they've enforced against historically, and the academic research suggests that these are the firms, these small high-growth firms where fraud is, is sort of most likely. And so we'd, we'd like to see the SEC uh, conduct a revised analysis looking at uh, looking at fraud moving beyond, uh, uh, beyond restatement rates.
1: So, Dan, you mentioned that um, the, the audit may affect small, high-growth biotech firms. But are audits any less relevant for those firms than it is for others? What do you think?
0: So that's a, that's a good question. Uh, one of the things that the proposal does, uh, does indicate is, is that it, it does disproportionately—the proposal to exempt firms from internal control audits—does uh, disproportionately affect uh, biotech firms. And, you know, intuitively, it makes, it makes sense. So it, it, the proposal affects firms with less than uh, $100 million in revenue. And you could have biotech firms that are very large in market value. Potentially, you know, they're trying to do important research and cure cancer and, and develop life-saving drugs, but they just don't have any sales yet because they're spending their, their money on, on R&D or, or developing medicines or, or vaccines or, or technology. Um, and so... Uh, what the proposal shows is that uh, those firms are disproportionately going to get going to get affected so then the question is as well and it's a good one these are firms that where we care predominantly about the science we care predominantly about whether in fact they can cure cancer and whether in fact they do have a a cutting-edge vaccine Um, and so we really don't care too much about their you know financial statements we care more about the science Let's you know let's let's unpack that because I think that's a that is a valid a valid point and I'm you know I'm not going to dispute that science is, is important and what they're doing is 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 sort of important. Um, one thing that's uh, that's useful to uh, um, to think about when when evaluating the proposal and the value of internal control audits is there's a, an interesting academic paper and you can get the paper in our comment letter if you really want to do a deep dive and that academic paper. Um, Uh, by some colleagues of mine, uh, surveyed 344 buy-side analysts from 181 different investment companies about red flags for intentional misreporting. Okay, so one way to assess the value of an internal control audit and an internal control weakness to investors is simply to ask sophisticated investors, what's the value of an internal control audit or an internal control weakness? And that's exactly what that survey did. And so they asked managers, as I mentioned, what are the red flags of intentional misreporting? And strikingly, sixty percent of respondents of analysts responded, "quote Material internal control weaknesses are definitely a red flag of management intent to misrepresent financial results." End quote. So, what that suggests is is that investors are using these audits. To gauge whether managers have bad intentions, whether they, whether they have malevolent intentions to uh, to mis, to misrepresent, and that's you know consistent with the consistent with the with the academic certainly with the academic evidence that these are associated with with restatements and, and whatnot. So I think it's important to note that internal controls are being used across all types of firms by investors to judge red flags for misrepresentation. But now within sort of your, your question is this notion of, well, is accounting less relevant for small, high-growth issuers where valuations are predominantly based on uh, the future uh, rather than sort of past transactions? And, and accounting uh, doesn't always pick up past transactions, sometimes picks up future transactions, but you know, a large part of accounting is historical transactions. So let's, let's, let's unpack that. So think about a low-revenue, high-growth company. How is it going to be valued? It's going to be valued based on its price-to-earnings or its price-to-revenue multiple. Okay, so our analysis um, looked at those those firms in 2018 that were affected by the proposal, not just the 11 that restate, but all of the firms in 2018 that were affected by the proposal, 300 and some, and we looked at their price-to-revenue ratio and compared that price-to-revenue ratio with that of their peers who wouldn't be affected, right? And, and so we typically think that... Higher growth means higher ratio. We're willing to pay more for a dollar of revenue or a dollar of earnings. So the price-to-revenue ratio for the affected companies in 2018 was 93. So for every $1 in revenue, $93 in price. For the peer firms that weren't affected, price-to-revenue ratio, 2.47. So $1 in revenue, $2.47 in price. So if you were to manipulate revenue by $1, there would be a much larger effect on stock price when the price-to-revenue ratio is larger, which is exactly the set of firms that the SEC is proposing to exempt from internal control audits. Okay. And that's, that's sort of important because while it suggests that the valuation is based on the future – we can't completely ignore the numbers. If anything, there's a higher valuation for every dollar of, of revenue in these firms. And that's why the academic literature in the SEC generally finds fraud is more pronounced in small, high-growth firms.
1: So, so, Dan, what implications do you see for investors, employees, customers, and other stakeholders if the SEC were to go ahead with this proposal? What do you think will be the ripple effects on the U.S. economy?
0: Okay, so there's a, a couple of different uh, constituencies uh, in there. Uh, the first in, investors. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about that. You know, I, I mentioned um, earlier that survey of um, buy side analysts for sophisticated institutions who said that they use internal control audits as a red flag for detecting misrepresentation and avoiding those companies. So they're not going to have that red flag available to them anymore for these affected firms. So one potential is, is that they may shift their investment from these firms because now the firm will be at greater risk. The sophisticated investors won't know whether um, the, the manager is misrepresenting or not. So they may allocate their investment from firms that forego the internal control audits to those that, that still have the internal control audits. So that could be a shift uh, in investors' preferences. Oh, uh, the other type of investors are the retail investors. Right, and so retail investors hold typically hold you know diversified portfolios, mutual funds, um, indexes, S and P five hundred, et cetera. So they're going to be well diversified. So one might think, oh well, one fraud, two frauds, or one restatement, two restatements, not going to really hurt them. And and I certainly agree with that, assuming that they're they're a reasonable size, not not, not Enron style frauds or or restatements. But let's think about the entire portfolio. If we're going to increase the rate of the rate of restatement within the entire economy, that could potentially have a substantial effect on these uh, index funds and uh, and retail investors. And so, one way to think about this is to actually look at what the SEC suggests the restatement rate will be after the proposal is put into effect. So. You know the SEC's proposal looks at restatement rates as as, as I've mentioned, and um, they suggest that there's going to be a much larger restatement rate for firms that don't have internal control audits. And their their own proposal, their own analysis suggests there's going to be a 26 to 72 percent increase in restatements among the affected firms. So we're talking about going from potentially single digits of Uh, you know, 6.5% to double digits uh, of, you know, around 10 or 11. So because that's double-digit restatement rate, and that's on average across all firms, you're going to see a total increase in the number of firms announcing restatements in any given year. And in that sense, it's a systematic effect. It's a systematic decline in reporting quality that's going to affect uh, investors, even if they hold diversified portfolios, and you're going to see an increase in volatility and potential increase in 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 number of number of scandals. Now, with regards to the other stakeholders, the employees, the customers, right? The they get affected, you know, potentially with large restatements and, in particular, with accounting fraud. So, if you have a large firm, a uh, 500 million dollar firm, and there are 500 million dollar firms um, that that fall into this proposal a fraud in a firm of that size is going to affect, you know, and if it takes down the, the entire company, you know, employees are going to lose their jobs. Customers are going to lose their, uh, you know, their products. You know, suppliers are going to lose their orders. And so there's going to be a void, so to speak, in the economy. You can't just take a the economy, subtract a $500 million firm, and then expect to go on business as normal because of how, um, interconnected everything is. So you're going to have a redu- reduction in supplier jobs, reduction in customer jobs. And that's what we mean when we say, you know, fraud, when it happens in a company, $500 million or more, you know, it can really take down more than just that company as if the company was, you know, uh, was, was quite
1: small. Dan, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. My pleasure. Thank you. For
0: more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.